Amen. May that be true for us. May God's will be done. I know God's will right now is that we get into his word, and so let's do it. All right? Get your Bibles out if you have one. We're back in 1 Corinthians after six weeks away as we celebrated uh, Christmas. And Paul here in chapter 10 is referring to the story of Israel as examples for us to learn from. And I just want to read our passage uh, here at the beginning, 1 Corinthians 10, and today we're studying verses 6 through 12. Here's what it says. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would feed us from your word, that you would nourish our hearts, that you would instruct our spirits, that you would uh, renew our minds, and that you would help us to know what your Holy Spirit meant when he inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words to us. We ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, our key verse here is verse 12. You may know this verse. Therefore, let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, the way that we know this is the key verse is the word therefore. This is the conclusion of everything that the Apostle Paul has been saying in verses 1 through 11 as he's been working through these examples from Israel. He then comes to, the, to that therefore, let he who thinks he stands let, take heed lest he fall. Listen, listen. Thinks he stands. Did you get that? Thinks that he stands. What is he talking about here? Paul is describing somebody who is spiritually disoriented. They think that they stand morally and spiritually. They think that they are strong. They think that they got it all together. But in reality, what is happening is they are in the process of falling. So apparently it is possible to be perceive yourself one way, but for something else to be actually the case. Now, something I think that I have never shared with uh, the church about my growing up years, and that's hard to believe because I think I've shared every story that I have, but one thing I don't think I've ever shared with you is that I was one of these kids who had chronic ear problems. And maybe some of you parents have had a child that was all the time having ear problems. I had ear problems. I had earaches all the time. I was on special medicine all the time. Uh, I had tubes in my ears twice. I, in my teen years, I, when I was 18, I severely broke, I forget which one, this eardrum. And had to have pretty major surgery to repair it. And then two years later, I severely broke this eardrum and had to have the same surgery to repair this one. I have scars behind both ears. Can you see them? From where the surgeries happened. So 
Uh, ears and ear stuff has been a part of my life. It was certainly when I was growing up. I'm not an expert on the ear, but I'm better than average. Let me tell you something about the ear. Uh, and it doesn't, the, you know, the ear is there obviously for hearing, but it has another function that is very, very important. Our ears have little mechanisms in them that give us our sense of balance, that sense of equilibrium, so that I can tell if I am upright and I can tell if I am horizontal. So hopefully right now, all of you have this feeling, your ear is sending to your mind that you are upright. And I hope that you remain upright through this entire message today. And We'll have a different feeling, won't we, when maybe this afternoon or tonight we take a nap or we lay down to go to bed tonight. And there'll be this feeling that we'll have now that I'm not vertical anymore. I'm now horizontal. That's the way that it is supposed to work. But if it isn't working properly, the ear can send a signal to the brain that the body is vertical when in reality it is horizontal or vice versa. That it is horizontal when it is in reality vertical. And this is a major problem. This is known as vertigo. When I can't tell where exactly I am. My body thinks it's in one place, but in reality it is in, it is in another. Pretty important, don't you think? Yeah, it's very important. Uh, just as an example, I, I, was, I was with my sister in, in Dallas and her family this uh, over Christmas and my brother-in-law flies for a major airline and this last year he had a little bacteria thing that somehow got into his ear and it threw off his sense of, of, of balance and equilibrium so bad. I mean, he was in bed. He was throwing up day after day after day. It was a horrible thing and he certainly couldn't fly an airplane if he didn't know what was up or down. And so he was grounded and it was a big, it was a big time problem. Most of us, though, have experienced at least temporary vertigo. Like over the holidays, if you have cousins or nieces or nephews or something, kids, kids love to be spun, don't they? And so like for me with my nieces and nephews, we did the Superman thing. And where I grab the hand and grab the, 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 the leg, you know, and you start, you get, you get them going, you begin spinning like this, right? You spin, you spin. I try to do this kind of number with them like this. And then I put them down. And you know that feeling that you have when you first put them down and you're like, you know what I'm talking about? All right. Or if you've ever been to a major sporting event, like the Bulls game, they'll do this sometimes at halftimes for the entertainment of the thousands. They'll bring some stooge out and they'll say, okay, here's what we want you to do. Spin around the bat 10 times and then we're going to give you a ball and you make a layup. Okay, so the guy's like, and if you make the layup, you win a new car or whatever it is. And so the guy, you know, he goes around, he goes around, he goes around, and then they give him the ball to make, to go up and make the layup. He grabs the ball and he's, you know, then down he goes and thousands of people laugh at him because we all can relate. We know, hey, look at that guy. He thinks he's upright, but in reality, he is falling. Or if you've ever been to a wedding where one of the people in the bridal party, the wedding party gets a little warm. And as they get a little bit warm and their knees lock, they go bye-bye, right? They pass out. And if you've ever seen this, you know what happens because they, they're already gone, but their body hasn't quite caught up with that. So what happens is they pass out, but then they're, you know, they lean one way a little bit and then they kind of lean the other way and then, you know, down they go. 
And I, in fact, I've had this at a, a couple weddings, I think, that I've done. I remember one, I was doing a wedding right here. I was standing right here giving a scintillating message on marriage and how important it is. This is why it's so surprising that in the middle of my message, anybody would have this happen to them. But we had a bridesmaid. She was on this step, like third or fourth one up right here. And she fell that way. And she went all the way down to the, to the floor. And she landed like a sack of potatoes. I mean, it was like thump. And... Everyone rushed to her and, and all the rest. What was going on there? Well, the same thing that was going on there, similar to what the bat guy or to the twirling the kids guy. People can think that they are standing, but there is a kind of condition when in reality we are falling. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Therefore, take heed, those of you that think that you are standing, lest you fall. Sin and temptation is much like this. It disorients us. In the, in the midst of temptation, when I am longing for something that I know is not a part of God's will, it is not pleasing to God, but I have this desire for it. I'm obsessing over it. As I feel this drawing to it or even involved in it, what is happening is I am disoriented. My value set and my belief system is all going like this, and I cannot, in that moment, or it's hard to make a good judgment. And that is how and why we so easily fall. And this is what the Corinthians were in danger of. We've talked about how they had this supreme self-regard. They looked in the mirror, spiritual mirror, and they looked at themselves and they thought, you know what? We are, we are some of the most spiritual Christians on the planet. I mean, in our church, it's, it's the coolest church that anybody could ever go to. I mean, the Apostle Paul started it. We're known everywhere for being really spiritual and smart and successful. we got tons of money. I mean, we've got it so together. And Paul writes to them and says, Your pride is blinding you to the fact that you do not stand like you think you stand. You are in the midst of falling. Take heed. And it's not just the Corinthians that are susceptible to this. We are, aren't we? It is us. The same kind of sense of everything's good. I'm fine. I don't need to be careful. I can live in this world. No problem. I got my faith. I got my other stuff. No big deal. That kind of mindset blinds us like the Corinthians to what our real condition is. We are in vertigo. And it is a weakness that Satan, the world, and the flesh exploits. How often we hear this on the other side of some kind of a damaging sin in some family or in somebody's life. In fact, you can finish this for me. I never thought that would happen. What was that? I didn't hear you. To me. Over and over and over again. I didn't think I would ever do something like that. Somebody like me with my background and my faith and my reputation and all that, I would never, ever do that. And here's what I can say to you today. If you are here right now and you're saying to yourself, well, this message isn't for me. This isn't anything that I need to hear. I'm thinking of somebody else that needs to hear this thing. You are precisely the person that is in the danger of falling. It is when we think we could never do that, that that pride is the very thing that leads to our falling. We are sinners, everyone. 
We have a constant propensity to sin. And the flesh and temptation so easily works its way in. And we fall and we're shocked that somebody like us would ever do it. The old saying is true. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. I was reading this last week. Um, probably like many of you, you know, it's the end of the decade. So they've been having all of these uh, lists of the top stories of the decade, the most important this, the most this, that, and the other. Well, I was reading uh, an article about the most influential sports stories of 2010. And I know that you find that shocking that I would be reading that, but I was. And so it listed the top 10 sports things that happened in the last 10 years. And I, of course, was wondering what, you know, what's number one? And was surprised to find that this is number one. And I have the quote here. This is an exact quote. Number one sports story in 2010. Temptation. And the writer says this. The undisputed force of the decade. It's not even close. Her perfume filled the air. Her stiletto footprints were everywhere. Too many in sports couldn't resist her. How many lives did she professionally and or personally damage? And the article went on to list the famous athletes who gave in to, you know, sexual stuff and steroids and cheating and, and all the rest. And the point is, these are examples, and they should tell us something. And that's what Paul is essentially doing here by looking at the Israelites, is saying, these are examples that ought to tell us something, not about the Israelites, and not necessarily about the Corinthians, but about us. We are them. We, they are us. We're the same, the same DNA spiritually. And if they can have all of these privileges and yet do what they did, then there isn't a single one of us here who could not, in the same kind of situation, do the same kind of thing. As Robert Murray McShane said, one of my favorite quotes, the seeds of the sins of all men lie within my own heart. There isn't one thing that anybody has ever done that my heart, in a moment of hardness and in a, in a, in a moment of insanity, couldn't do the same thing. So we all need to get off of our little, uh, our little pedestals and, and uh, listen to the words of Jesus who said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Nobody could throw it and none of us can either. This is why this is so important. We need to understand how this works so that we could have some kind of a defense against this kind of falling into sin and its terrible consequences. So what I want us to do is to look at these examples that Paul gives us and to try to understand how these things work. So here's the first thing, and we see it in verse 7. The first method that temptation employs is to create a thought within us. And here's the thought. That there is something or somebody that is... More fulfilling, more ultimate, more significant, more pleasurable, better than God. Look at verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, speaking of the Israelites. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
Now, this is a reference to a story that uh, many of us probably know. And if you ever saw the movie The Ten Commandments, they have their own sort of version of this story. But here's what happened. The Israelites have experienced the ten plagues that God used to get the okay for them to leave Egypt. They go to the edge of the Red Sea. Here comes Pharaoh's army. They're like, we are so toast. This is terrible. God, and Moses says, you just watch. And God spreads the Red Sea. They walk across on dry land. They get to the other side. They look back. Here comes the, the Red Sea back over Pharaoh's army. They're all wiped out. Now they're on the right side of the, of the sea. Everything's great. They sing songs to God. They dance around. They have a big high you time. They get walking a little ways. God starts showing manna. Manna revealed, manna appears on the ground. They're eating free food every day. This is, they were, this is like a Dutch man's dream, you know. Free food every day, and there's water coming from rocks, and God's providing this. They're seeing a pillar of fire that's leading them. They go to Mount Sinai, and on Mount Sinai, there's thunder and lightning. The glory of God is there. Moses goes to the top of the mountain to represent the people and to enter into a covenantal relationship with Yahweh. And while he's up there, just for like a month, he's up there like around, this is a month after they've experienced all these things, the people are down in the valley. And guess what they're doing? They're looking around and they're saying, you know what? I'm not so sure that, that, that this God is enough. What we need is a God that we can see. We need a God that we can manipulate. We can't manipulate this God. He's too powerful. We want a God that we can control. We want our own kind of God. And they looked to Aaron and they said, Aaron, the high priest, you make us one of these gods. And Aaron, in a moment of stupidity, says, okay, gathers the gold and makes what is known as the golden calf. And what happened then is once the golden calf was made and revealed to the people of Israel, they threw a giant feast. And that's what Paul refers to here the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play so do you see the irony of this here is moses on the top of the mountain getting the covenantal stipulations including the ten commandments and the first commandment is thou shalt have no other gods before me he's up there doing that and at the same time down in the valley are the israelites and what are they doing they are bowing down to another god days after experiencing the red sea and the plagues and all the rest we want to reach back in the story and just throttle them what are you thinking right idolatry and they make a golden calf. The Egyptians worshipped the bull. So they pull out the Egyptian god. And the word there for play, by the way, when they rose to play, it is a euphemism for sexual activity. So what happened was there was a feast and there was a, 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 a national orgy that took place. Now how... Do people go from crossing the Red Sea to idolatry, feasting, and orgy in a month? How does that happen? Well, here's how it happens. The desire, listen now, the desire to worship and live for something other than the real God of heaven is so subtle. It, it works its way into our belief system and into our priority set subtly so that we we say oh yes i've got my faith i've got my christianity but then i have this this sort of fifth column 
priority. I've got this backdoor thing that subtly becomes the thing that I am really caring about and living for and indeed worshiping. And that thing is an idol. Now, I recently read, and I would recommend this book to you. This is a new book by Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods. And uh, this could be one of your books in 2010 that you read. All of us are going to be reading this year. This could be one of them. Very good book. And the subtitle, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope that Matters. And I, I, I want to share just a few things from this book that I think are helpful and relate to what we're talking about. First of all, what is an idol, really? Here's what Keller writes. It is anything that is more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give uh, you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children or career or making money or achievement and critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. Listen, friends, we have to realize that idolatry is not about the golden calf because there are probably some of us that, th- that look at that story and say, well, I would never bow down to something that was made. That just seems kooky. We in the West, we would never do that kind of thing. Therefore, I do not struggle with idols. No, idolatry is not about the golden calf. It is the desire and the, the searching and seeking for something for fulfillment that only God can provide. So that it can be just about anything that I lift up in my value set higher than the God of heaven. And that's why the very first commandment is not honor your father and mother or don't murder or don't lie. It is you shall have no other gods before me. That's the preeminent. When you get that one right, you're probably going to get the rest of them right as well. Keller goes on to say this, if you want to know what, who your God is, who or what do you enjoy imagining? There's a helpful thing. When you have a quiet moment in the morning or at night or some other time, and you just, your mind can just think about whatever it wants to think about. What do you think about? What tends to just kind of fill your mind? What do you talk about? These are the things that indicate what really is important to us, no matter what our religion or our faith may say. The Bible uses three metaphors to describe how people relate to idols. They love idols, trust idols, and obey idols. And then the final quote is this. The most painful times in our lives are times in which our Isaacs, our idols, are being threatened or removed. You know, times of crisis will indicate what we really care about, like what our bottom line really is. Here's an easy example of this. You remember the stock market crash in, uh, in the 1920s? Some of you remember it. 
some of you have read it in your history books. Um, when that market crashed, what were people doing? Jumping off buildings, right? Why? Like, what does that say about what they really cared about? Well, if my stock doesn't have the value that it did have, my life has no meaning. Therefore, I'm going to, I'm going to end it. Or we could even think about, you know, think about the last, this last decade where we had a couple of recessions. And what happens in America when there is a recession? People freak out, right? Why? Because money is a god in the U.S. And so when that god is going down, as Keller says, when it's being threatened, now this is a big deal to me. Much more could be said on this. But here's what, I'm, here's what I'm saying in the context, is that idols are evidence of spiritual vertigo. When I am living for something that is not God, and is not, and we would say, you know, Christ, our Savior, our Lord, when I'm living for something else, what is going on? I'm disoriented. I'm thinking that there's something else that's better than him. I'm, I'm, I'm spiritually kind of like this. And how easily we fall when an idol has become a big part of our value set. So let me just ask you, as I talk about an idol and what do you think about and what are you living for, is it possible that there are some counterfeit gods in your heart and in your life? You shall have no other gods before me. He says that for our good. God is the best God that you could ever serve. Idols are ruthless taskmasters. So maybe think about any idols in your heart, in your life. Second thing, second example that he gives is in verse 8, where he says, We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. The second kind of vertigo, dizzying thing that temptation uses is this powerful desire that we have as sexual beings. And sexual fulfillment rising to a level of importance where this now is the thing that I want more than anything else. And the example that he gives is from Numbers 25. Now here's what happened. Let me tell you the story. The Israelites, I've already done, gone through all of this, but they, I'll do it again. Ten plagues, get out of here. All the gold of Egypt given to them through the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army wiped out. Manna every morning. Things to drink that are provided for them. They go to the Mount Sinai. They have their wilderness wanderings. All the rest. They end up encamped next to the Moabites in Moab. Now the Moabites were Canaanite, just pagans. They worshipped pagan uh, gods. And the, the Moabites are, they see the Israelites and they're like, Hey, why don't we hang out with them? Let's invite them to come party with us and to come worship with us. And so they're like, Hey, Israelites, why don't you, why don't you come on over? We'd love to have you, you know, let's, let's have a good time. And so some of the Israelites actually ended up being many of them were like, well, Hey, you know, Let's go over there and let's see what they're doing. And so they go and they begin to party with the, with the Moabites. And if you party with the Moabites, you end up sleeping with the Moabites. And that is exactly what happened. And through the worship as well, this happened because the Canaanite 
gods were very, the worship was very sexual. And so here you have the Israelites. Well, it's, it's time, it's Sabbath. It's time to worship. I can either go to the tabernacle and give up the best goat that I have in my flock, or I can go and I can sleep with the prostitute Moabite women. When sexual fulfillment is your criteria, guess where you go? And that's exactly what happened. And quoting now, Numbers 25, verse 1, the Israelites began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Now, I hope I don't have to color this in. You see what's going on. And God judged them, and 23, 24,000 of them were killed. So here's what's going on. They claim to be the people of God, but they were bowing down in reality to, to sexual sin. And God judged them for it. In their heart, sex is better than God. Sex is better than the favor of God. Illicit sex, that is. And I guess we could say all. But there is so much to say on this point. And I need to muster the energy here to give this its proper oomph. And I hope that you listen, because this is so subtle. What happens with sexual desire? It's like a drug. It's like a drug. It, it numbs the spiritual senses in a way that suddenly now this opportunity, and it, it doesn't have to be sex, it can be lust, it can be, it can be pornography, it can be all the, anything in this category, what happens is, in that moment, when I'm in vertigo, and I'm, my, I, my sense of what is right and wrong and what God wants, is, it, it's all confused. What happens is that the, the, the desirability of the pleasure that it would provide is maximized, and the consequences of fulfilling it are minimized. And in that moment, when I am in spiritual vertigo, it can seem like a very rational thing to do. To go ahead and to sleep with a person, leave my wife, whatever it is. Lust is very, very powerful and very, very disorienting. So that somebody in the midst of this can say, I love God, but she is so beautiful. She is so desirable. She is so much better than not having her. So much better than having someone else. And in that moment, we forget, don't we, a suffering Savior for sin. Is a, is a guy that's obsessing online with online pornography, in that moment, as he's doing that, is he going, oh, Jesus is a great Savior? No. That thought is way off the radar screen. My heart has been captured, and my mind and my affections are engaged in such a way that I have lost my equilibrium. You know, we're living in the land of Moab here. We really are. You know, we're living in Moab. Parents, you're raising kids in Moab. Every day there are Moabite women, I'm going to speak from a man's perspective, there are Moabite women who are offering themselves and saying, hey, come party with me. And that can be just visual, it can be actual as well. But we're living in the land of Moab, and that's why we've got to understand how this works. Because it is so 
compelling. You know, a good-intentioned man, Christian man, can and will struggle with this. It'll happen. It does happen. A guy, a Christian man walking at the mall, just to give an example, you're walking down the mall, and suddenly there's a beautiful woman, or you're going by Victoria's Secret or some other place like that, suddenly you're assaulted by this uh, Moabite Moabite secret. (laughs) And they never put ugly women up there. That would be helpful, but. (laughs) Where did that come from? But you're walking along, and all of a sudden, there's this opportunity, this visual opportunity. And what happens is suddenly, even the well-intentioned man is all like, spiritually inward. That's what it feels like, right? All of a sudden, I'm all out of whack, and I'm struggling to regain my balance spiritually to see this picture or that woman from a biblical perspective. I'm all out of whack. And the reason that I know that is that I am that well-intentioned Christian man who's walking. If you see me in the mall, I'm probably, you know, I'm doing this number. (laughs) It's hard because it's so powerful and so deceptive and so damaging. Now, we need to hasten to add this because if you go to church, oh, they preach against sex again. Listen, we've done all kinds of teaching here about This as a gift from God and how God intended it to be a joyous blessing within the confines of marriage and that this is God's good plan and a part of his common grace to mankind. There's all kinds of messages that you can listen to about that. So it is itself good. When it is a problem is when it is illicit and when it is outside of God's will. And now temptation and the power of that, stolen waters are sweet, as the Proverbs say. There is a kind of power to it that is extremely difficult. This is vertigo. This is vertigo. If King David would have thought for a moment rationally about the consequences of sleeping with Bathsheba, she, he would not have given her a second look. But in that moment, the consequences went away and all he thought about was her. And you think of all the damage and all of the sorrow that came into his life. And this is the man who was after God's own heart, the only person said that that's said of. And if King David could succumb in this area, there isn't a one of us here who couldn't do the same thing. And that's why this is, joking aside, and maybe I should regret any humor on this point, because when you see the damage that this creates, there's nothing to laugh about. I received a note from someone a man who told me that he was struggling because he was obsessing with a woman, not his wife. And he asked me what he should do. And this is, what I, this is what I wrote to him. I wrote, I share your deep concern for this fantasy that you are in. As you must realize, this is not God's will. 
it is a lie that is promising to offer you something that fidelity to your wife and God will not provide. You need to take this thought captive and kill it by slaying it with what you know to be true. Sexual sin outside of marriage is a powerful lie. You promised your wife you would love her only. The world and your family is watching to see if there is any truth to your profession of Christ. Every adulterer is judged by God. The consequences of doing what you are fantasizing would be devastating and regretful for a lifetime. A few honest moments of reflection like this would surely show this other woman and the thoughts you have toward her to be completely foolish. If you intentionally spend time thinking and praying through these things and still cannot see this woman through the lens of truth, let me know. Now, one more thing I do want to say here. Sexual sin is a sin. That's the bad news. Sexual sin is a sin. That's the good news. Jesus died for our sin. This means that this is a category where there is redemption to be had. And if you are here and you're like, man, I have already blown it in this category. Let me just tell you, there is a reason that we sing about God's grace being amazing. And there is grace to be had for this sin and any other sin. And there is redemption from them if we come to God with a contrite heart and a desire for him to forgive us and to receive the grace that he offers to the brokenhearted. And that's what I would encourage you to do. And to be restored to God. Be restored to your wife, your family, whoever has been hurt by this. This can happen. I'd also add that we are all in this struggle together. So let's not let any of us be too quick to pick up stones and to throw them at anyone. Third example, and I'll do this one quick, is grumbling against God's goodness. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And I'm going to take these, these are two stories. I'm going to take them together because they relate to one another. Israel complained against God. If you read the story of Israel, they were all the time grumbling against God. This food isn't good enough. And all that we would have died in Egypt. And the example that's given here is when the the spies come back and say, there's giants there. It's scary there. And they're all like, why did you bring us to die here? And God severely punished them for that. So in these two examples, one tested God and the other questioned his goodness. Both of these are blasphemy. And since the sins of the seeds of all men lie within our own heart, we need to look at that and say, wait a second. How often do we do this? How often in my heart do I look at the circumstances of my life and think to myself, if I was God, I would do it different than this. If I was God, I would not have this thing in my life. If I was God, I would have this thing in my life, and it's not. I, God, why are you doing this to me? And we shake our fist against God, and we question whether he is a good God. And the Israelites did this constantly, and too often we do the same. Now, there's a reason that we can do this, and that is because this is a broken and fallen world, which means there is nothing perfect in this world. 
Nothing. There's nobody that you cannot find fault in. There is nothing that we have ever done that has ever been perfect. So if, if you want to find something to complain about, there is something to complain about in everything in our life. And some people are really, really good at it. There's been some times I've thought to myself, you know what? When these people get to heaven, they're going to look around and think, it's just not what I thought it was going to be. I'm a little disappointed. You know, constantly negative, constantly finding the little thing that isn't quite the way that they... And the flesh feeds on that negativity and savors the bitterness. And behind it is a heart that is wishing that it was God. And if it was, it would do things better. Grumbling, murmuring. We, have, we are tempted to, to do that. But this is how it works. So we're talking about vertigo. Temptation gets in. Something rises to a level more important than it ought to be. And we suddenly become idolatrous. And we get all whacked out in our, in our balance. Or a desire like sexual desire rises in some way and captures our heart and our affections. And we get disoriented. And then we end up falling and doing things that we would never want to do. But we find ourselves having done it. Or we get discontented against God and against things in our life and we shake our fist against God and we think that we're justified in doing it because, you know what, I have a right to say what I want to God and if I was God, I would do it differently. I would be a better God than God is God, we think. And we get disoriented. And so what are we supposed to do? Well, notice that it just says this, take heed. Take heed. It means... Look out. But it's in the imperative. So can I give you an accurate translation of this? This is what it means. Look out! Do I need to do that again? Because I don't know that my voice has it. That's like the last one I got right there. But that's the sense of it. When you see sin and the damage that it brings and all of, all of the punishment and the, the, the sorrow, look out be vigilant against it it's critical this it's funny this morning on my way to church today here's a great example of this i'm on my way to church today i'm driving down a road in our in my subdivision and i'm tooling along and on my way to church and here's a guy blowing out snow in his driveway Okay, and he's got one of these snowsuits on with the big head and the kind of the thing that comes around like this. And here he comes, pushing snow out the end of his driveway. And I saw him out of the corner of my eye. And I'm like going, okay, you need to stop about right there. Well, then he keeps going into the roadway to blow the the snow into the roadway. I almost hit him. I literally did. I mean, it's one of those where I'm like, (gasps) like this. And I honked my horn lovingly as I drove by. And I'm thinking to myself, if I'd have killed him, could I have made the first service? I mean, this is... (laughs) No, it was a scary moment. It was one of those like, ah, what's the problem? It wasn't my fault. The guy was not looking. Maybe that helps somehow. I throw that in there for free. Look out. Take heed. And beyond that, what we're to do is what we're not going to get to today, but we will spend next week on. 
It's verse 13. It's one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. How do we overcome sin and temptation? No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So that's what we're talking about next week. I think it could be a good one. I hope that you're able to come. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you that you care enough about us to keep us from the things that do such damage to us. And I pray, Lord, over our our church and over this room here today, and I pray, Lord, that if there is an idol that has taken a hold of our hearts, any heart here, Lord, that that idol might be identified today and that your word and your spirit would show it to be the insanity and the lie that it is. And I pray that you would restore spiritual balance to that person today. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here that has been captured by the power of sexual desire outside of marriage, that you would, Lord, help them to see that for what it is, a soul-corrupting lie, and that you would restore balance and you would restore them. And Father, for all the other things that we allow to become hindrances to our relationship to you and that we hold against you and that we resent about our life, Lord, I pray that your goodness to us would overwhelm these lesser things and that we would be a profoundly grateful people. And may you be glorified in a church that is pursuing holiness. To you be the glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.